Before we get started, I want you to look around a little bit. And then I want you to take a deep breath. Take another one. That feels good. Isn't it wonderful to be alive? And isn't it wonderful to be in God's house on the Sabbath morning? You know, a, a few weeks ago, we had some friends staying with us, and they had some, some little children. And uh, one of Christina's aunts was staying with, uh, with us. It was actually for her dad's memorial service. And um, she, she loves to give gifts to everyone. So she went to the, to the dollar store, and she bought a bunch of these little flashlights. And they're pretty bright flashlights, little cheap little flashlights, and um, gave them to all the little kids that were staying around with us and with Susan. And uh, I remember that evening, the, the little girl took her flashlight and turned it on, and it was fairly dark in the room that, that we were in, and she puts that flashlight down into her hand. And she looks at her hand, and her hand, which had been kind of, you know, pale, normal colored skin, her hand starts glowing bright red from that flashlight. And I remember her looking up at, at, at me, looking up in my eyes and saying, with this wide-eyed expression, why is it red? How come it's red? How come her hand was red? Her hand wasn't red. Blood. There's, we don't like to think about it, maybe. Some people are a little squeamish when it comes to, to blood. But there's blood flowing through her hand. In fact, if you were to look at her hands right now, you don't maybe see it. If you, if you, if you touch your, your fingernail, and then let, you can see the blood kind of go out of your fingernail and then come back in. You know? There's blood flowing through every part of your body. You know how I know? Because you're alive. If, if you weren't, if there weren't blood flowing through your body, in fact, you wouldn't be alive. You know, the air that we breathe, the air that you just sucked into your lungs, about 21% of it is oxygen. You know that every cell in your body requires oxygen in order to live. You know, it would seem like, well, that's no problem. There's plenty of oxygen, plenty of air. We're not going to run out anytime soon. Except that your cells, the vast majority of them, cannot breathe air. It's true. Most of the cells in your body, no matter how much air is around, they're not going to get oxygen from the air. The only way that your cells are going to get oxygen is from this special thing that we call blood that's flowing through our bodies. That blood, it's an amazing thing. It's like a marvel of engineering. It's not just red juice that goes around and around. You know, It's a marvel of engineering. God's engineering, shall I say. You know that there are 30 trillion cells, living cells, circulating through your bloodstream. Now, most of those are what we would call the red blood cells. Now, these red blood cells act like a raft, and they carry the oxygen from your lungs to every little part of your body. It takes about a minute for your blood to travel from your heart through your lungs, back through your heart, and then down to whatever part of your body it's going to and back. So it's kind of a figure eight. It goes through your heart a couple times. It takes about a minute, give or take, you know, maybe longer for, for your lower extremities. But 
If you were to take your blood vessels, let me, there's another trivia question for you. If you were to take all the blood vessels in your body, capillaries, arteries, veins, all of them, and just stretch them out in a line, how far, how long do you think it'd be? You think you'd have a mile of blood vessels in your body? It's enough to go around the world four times. <laughs> four times around the world. That's how many blood vessels are in your body. And yet the blood circulates through those every single minute. There's fresh blood coming through to bring that fresh oxygen to you. Even, even those red blood cells, it's like nothing, nothing is overlooked. They're a special shape. They're kind of like a cross between a pancake and a donut, okay? They're, they're round, if you look on one side, but they're kind of flattened. And they're concave in the, in the, in the center. So they're thin in the center and thick around the edges. Well, why is that? And scientists have, have done some study and they've discovered that, well, for one, it helps them to absorb oxygen real quickly. And for a long, long time, people, uh, the scientists thought, well, that's the reason that they're this shape. But they also discovered more recently that it helps your blood to flow more freely. And, and if a, uh, people have a genetic defect for some reason that causes their blood, blood cells to be a different shape, they, uh, the blood cells will either die more quickly or they will not get, um, they'll get stuck together and they'll damage the, damage the blood vessels. So anyone, if they, if they have red blood cells that are a different shape, they will tend to have some kind of condition that at some point in their lives will show up where they're painful or, or they won't have enough energy because the blood cells aren't the exact correct shape. Isn't it amazing that even down to the minutest little cell, your body is designed by a loving creator? You know, blood is so important to human life and it has been throughout history that blood has been equated with life itself. A lot of times when we say blood, a lot of times when the Bible speaks about blood, it's talking about life itself. If your heart were to stop beating, if your blood were to stop flowing, you would be dead. That would be it. You know, it's amazing, in the last few years, medical science has discovered that even if your heart stopped beating, Depending on the circumstances, someone could do compressions on your chest and, and gets your heart to beat long enough for the medical personnel to arrive and perhaps they can shock your heart and get your heart going again and actually save your life. If you lose too much blood, just as if your heart stops beating, you'll also die. But medical science has discovered that there's a way that you can take someone else's blood, we call that a blood transfusion, and put it into your veins and keep that oxygen flowing and save your life. And, and, and today, a blood transfusion is actually somewhat of a routine procedure. It's done on a, on a common basis for, for uh, if someone has in surgery or has a traumatic accident or, or for whatever reason. It can save your life. But blood has to be flowing in order for there to be life. Well, why am I talking about this? Why am I giving you a medical science lecture in church? <laughs> Some people get a little squeamish when we talk about blood, and I'm sorry if you're, if you're one of those people. Actually, I, I am too, by the way, but I can talk about it, but I don't want to see it. But you know, the Bible talks a lot about blood. If you turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, this is the account, of course, of the Last Supper. Jesus says, for this 
is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood of the new covenant. The blood of the covenant. What do I mean by the blood of the covenant? And why is blood so closely connected with the gospel? Remember what I said a moment ago, how blood is equated with life? You know, in the Bible, we find this over and over again. Genesis chapter 9, for example. Go to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. God commands the people that are serving him, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. If they were to kill an animal, if they were to slaughter an animal and eat the meat, they were to specifically instructed to drain the blood out. Why? Because that was the life. And they were not to eat the blood, which is the life. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then in Leviticus 17, verse 14, God says specifically, its blood sustains its life. So you have blood and life, and the two go hand in hand. You know, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, you know the story. Adam and Eve were created perfect in a perfect garden, but there was one tree in the middle of that garden, and God said, don't eat of that tree, because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But you know the story. Eve ate the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. And God came to find them in the, in the garden. And he takes them, he casts them out of the garden. He talks with them. He gives them a promise. Before he casts them out of the garden, he gives them a promise that a deliverer is going to come. And the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of that serpent that had brought them into sin. And as a sign of that promise, he gave them a symbol. You know what that symbol was? The sign of that coming deliverer? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to go here anyway. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is talking to the serpent here and saying, he, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. But verse 21, and we kind of deduce from this passage what takes place here. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin to clothe them. How would he get skins? How would he get animal skins? He offered a sacrifice, and you see that going on in the, in the very next chapter, in the, the story of Cain and Abel. You see that God had already established the sacrificial system. You see from the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden, God commanded his true followers to sacrifice an animal, to shed its blood as a symbol of one who was to come, who would shed his blood for the sin of the whole world. By the time of the exodus from Egypt, though, 
God's people had completely forgotten about God's promise. They'd forgotten virtually everything. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. And God had once again to reestablish his promise and his covenant that he had made with Eve in the Garden of Eden. We find that in the book of Exodus. We find in Exodus chapter 20 how God came down on a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he spoke his law, his Ten Commandments from that mountain. And the people said, don't let God speak to us. We're going to die. So God continued to give laws to Moses. And Moses wrote those down in a book called the Book of the Covenant. And in fact, in Exodus chapter 24, and if you're in Genesis already, just turn a few pages over to Exodus chapter 24. And we find what happens with this Book of the Covenant. Moses finishes writing it out in the end of of chapter 23. And Moses gets up early in the morning, and he offers sacrifice. And he takes this book, and God commands him to read it to the people. Starts with the Ten Commandments, but then it goes on to to really a a synopsis of the rest of of the ceremonial law and the feasts. See, he reads this in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood. That was the blood from the sacrifice, okay, that he had just offered. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all of these words. So what happened here? Just, just, just in a nutshell, Moses reads the law. The people say, okay, all that God has said we will do and be obedient. And they said, this is, this is going to be our covenant. But you see, I think even at this point, the people missed the covenant that God wanted to make with them. You see, the people did not realize that in their own hearts, they weren't able to keep God's law. As good as it sounds... And it all sounds good. All that the Lord has said we will do. As good as it sounds. How long did they keep their covenant? Not long at all. Because Moses went back up to the mountain. And by the time he came back down from that mountain, what happened? They were worshiping a golden calf. They had forgotten all of God's commandments. And they were ready to go back to the religion of Egypt. You see, that sprinkled blood, if the people had understood what God was doing, that sprinkled blood would have enabled them to keep the covenant that God was making with them. It would have changed their hearts. But the people didn't listen. They said, we can do it ourselves. And the sign of the covenant, you know what God wanted to be the sign of this covenant that he was making? Not a promise of obedience. All that the Lord has said, we will do, we will do, we will do, we will work our way into this covenant. That wasn't what God wanted at all. Turn to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, verse 13. What was the sign of the covenant that God wanted to make with his people? Exodus 31 and verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Look here. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
The Sabbath isn't about work. The Sabbath is about a sign of the covenant because what do we do on the Sabbath? We we rest. Thank you. We don't work. We rest. And because of that, as Paul brings out in the book of Hebrews, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. This rest was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And as we rest on the Sabbath today, we look back to what Jesus did, not only in creation, but we look back to what he did on the cross in our redemption. That we don't have to work our way into heaven. But anyway, go, uh, go to verse 16. Again, this is it gets even better. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. For it is a sign between me and the children of Israel. How long? Forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. See, the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. But the covenant that, God, that the children of Israel made with God was not based on the Sabbath because they didn't listen. It was not based on the blood, even though the blood was sprinkled, because they didn't listen. It was based on the promise that they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. A promise that they soon found out they could never keep. And so it was throughout the history of the children of Israel. More often than not, they found themselves breaking the promise rather than keeping it. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. One that was not based on the promises of man, but a covenant that was based on the promises of God and the blood of Jesus. And I want to submit to you that this was the covenant that God wanted to make in the days of Moses, and Israel wouldn't listen. God wanted to make a new covenant then so he wouldn't have to make a new covenant later, but they wouldn't listen. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Chapter 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Notice, my covenant, which who broke? Did God break it? They broke, though I wasn't husband to them, says the Lord. Listen to this. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember. No more. What is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Is the law changed in the, in the New Covenant? Or is the place of the law changed? Instead of being written on tables of stone, instead of being based on a promise that this is what I'm going to do, God says, I'm going to write that law again in your heart and in your mind. And when it's written in your heart and when it's written in your mind, you will serve me because it'll be your nature. We find it again in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you will dwell in the land I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Notice this. This is beautiful. Because in addition to what's talked about in Jeremiah, we have this beautiful concept of what that blood does. A lot of times the blood and the water are, 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 are used together. This, this, these symbols are used together to talk about cleansing. You see, each one of us, every single one of us, has got what we call in modern day language, baggage. We've got guilt. We've been places we ought not to have been. We've done things we ought not to have done. And by God's law, we are condemned. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They should have died. We should die. There's nothing that we can do, even if we were to keep God's law perfectly from today forward, without a, without a break, we would still be condemned because of what we've done already. Except for this one thing. Except for the blood. The blood and the water. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. See, there's two things, and they go together, my friends. It starts with a cleansing of the past. Because without cleansing that past, we can have no hope for the future. But if all that is done is a cleansing of the past... My heart is still a stone. And no sooner will you let me get out of this building and I'll be right back to where I was before. You see, it's both. It's a cleansing of the past and that's, there's something freeing about saying you're no longer guilty. I paid the price. And that in itself is part of it. But God does more. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to change your heart. You don't have to be like you were before. You can be a new person because of the blood of the covenant. You see, this is what God wanted to do with the children of Israel when he first brought them out of Egypt. When Moses sprinkled that blood on them, that blood of the covenant, that blood was sufficient. And looking forward to Christ, of course, it wasn't just the blood of the animal, the bullock there. It was the blood of Christ represented in that blood. That was more than sufficient to cleanse the entire camp of Israel, to make them new. God wanted to give them a new heart, but they wouldn't have it. It wasn't until the coming of Christ that God's people really had a picture of what was meant by that sprinkling blood. Go back with me where we started, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood 
of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You see, these were not idle words that Jesus was saying. These were key words, the blood of the covenant. And in the disciples' minds, it took them back to this ceremony that Moses had conducted at the Mount Mount Sinai, to the sprinkling of the blood, to the signing of a covenant. But in this case, Jesus is doing it again. He's doing it with his disciples, with a cup of grape juice. John chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus said to the crowd that had gathered around, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This was a hard saying for his people. This is a hard saying for us today. Are we talking about cannibalism? No. He wasn't talking about literally eating his flesh. But in symbol, partaking of his life and allowing him to change us the new covenant. Now Jesus had come to the brink of his great sacrifice. No longer would we have to look to Christ through the symbols of the sacrifices and the blood poured out at the altar. On the cross, all would see the blood pouring from his side, from his hands, from his feet. And for those who would believe on him, as it says in John 3.16, that blood would infuse forgiveness, transformation, and a new spiritual life. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats And the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Paul says in in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness. But my friends... Because of the blood of Christ, we have hope in and through him. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin to salvation. Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. My friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of this blood of the covenant. What does that mean for us, my friends? What does the blood mean to you? Just as the blood was sprinkled on the congregation at Mount Sinai, so Christ's blood has been shed for you. Just like your physical blood sustains your life, each moment. So, my friends, the blood of Jesus is essential to your spiritual life. It's not a one-time transaction. 
If the blood was running through your veins yesterday, but it's not running through your veins today, would you be alive or dead? You'd be dead. It's not one time that Jesus gives you his, his blood. It's one time that he was offered on, a, on the cross. That's true. But day by day, moment by moment, we must be infused with his life. The gospel is not a fire escape plan, my friends. It's a transformed life. It's a new experience. It's a changed heart. It's about a relationship. About a relationship with one who can give us victory day by day. And about grace. Marvelous grace that begins now and continues for eternity. You know, we talk about this in theological terms. We talk about justification. We talk about sanctification. What does all this mean? Just what I just said. It's simple. You're declared righteous. That means you're justified. Once you're declared righteous, Jesus doesn't stop there without actually making you righteous day by day through his grace. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. What will that mean, my friends? God has shown us what life should look like by giving us his Ten Commandments. Will you, like ancient Israel, say all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient? I've tried that, my friends. I see what God says. I'm going to try and do it. It didn't last very long. No sooner can I, do I get the words out of my mouth than the devil's pounced on my back and I've broken my promise. But will you not rather say with me, Lord Jesus... I behold your law. I see the standard of righteousness, but I can do nothing without you. I'm powerless to keep it. But with your law, I behold your cross. And I come to you in faith, claiming your promise. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And with the doubting father, I cry, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Lord, apply the merits of your blood to my life. Blot out my sin. Bury my old life in the death of Christ. And may I rise to walk in newness of life. One of my favorite authors wrote these words. Ellen G. White in the book Christ's Object Lessons. No man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, Take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. My friends, I believe that a sincere prayer like this will never 
go unheard. My friends, I believe this is what it means by the blood of the covenant. Just say, yes, Lord. Put it on my heart. I want to be yours. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.